0: Podcast listeners, how are we doing? This is episode 44 of the 1080 Outdoors podcast. This is a land management version slash, hey, if you want to be a part of changing the world, uh, go ahead and start looking into these practices. I'm, uh, right now, I'm joined by Weston, and we just, uh, what you're about to listen to is our interview with Mark Shepard. The. Yeah, Mark Shepard. He uh, coined. It's kind of. Well, I don't even know. I don't know if he's trademarked it or not. But um, so we've been talking a lot about regenerative agriculture. His phrase is restoration agriculture. Um, he legitimately wrote the book on it. Um, yep. His book is called Restoration Agriculture. It was the first book. So let me give you a background on how I got so obsessed with Mark. Um, so we're from Southwest, Southwest Wisconsin. I'm listening to a a Rogan podcast I'm you know, I'm in the process of trying to figure out how can I buy hunting property and still like, how can I buy a hunting property and and essentially like let the business of the um, farm and the land pay for the property itself? So I minimize the risk of just owning a bunch of property without it producing any revenue. So I was contemplating, I I went back and forth on a million different things and I went, I got into the world of soil health and really narrowing down, like not only how to make money on a property, but how to make money and then how to grow value of the property and just to increase pretty much every aspect of the property, You're building organic matter in the soil, um, improving the wildlife, everything. And it all stems on diversity um marks uh, essentially his book is is outlining a method or th- his actual practices which uh, has let him cash flow a, a real estate investment into a business and then um over time that asset has grown 10x at least so his property value he told us his his uh, assessed value the last time he did it um over ten thousand dollars an acre in an area where uh, it'd be between three and four thousand an acre. Yeah. Um, tillable ag land around here is based on the you know current corn prices and and based on other things, but it's going right around that three to five thousand dollar an acre range. Um, and yeah, his essentially is, is worth over ten thousand an acre. And it actually, and it also not only is the value double what current value is. So what he bought it for 26 years ago, he's, I mean, he's way above and beyond where he, what he bought it for. Um But not only did he improve the value monetarily, his deer hunting has exploded where he made comments in this podcast, I think, or maybe, you know, we'd, we'd walk this farm with him where it's just almost like too simple, too easy.
1: Oh, well, yeah, we are at that one spot and he's like just over the last what do you say, three or four years he's taken yeah, seven seven deer out of that. And he from the sound of it he only gun hunts.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he's and he yeah, his main focus is not hunting. He yeah, actually no. people coming and hunt. He's a he's well known, he's world renowned in the agricultural world. So, um and I think it's so important that I mean he's he's doing systems like this at a large, large scale in the agricultural world. So yeah creating more profit, more, um, sustainable farms. And when you really look in the mirror and you own a property or a hunting property and you, or your management goals, there's no reason why you wouldn't at least start taking in some of these, these methods. I mean, this is a basic overview of the theory and how we can relate it to hunting. Um, but you know, it's the same thing when we interviewed Jason Snavely regenerative, um, type land management now for hunting is proving more and more that the deer hunting is only going to, going to improve your cost during, um, harvest is way down. You're not doing the insecticides, pesticides, um, all that stuff. So I don't know, Weston, you're, you're completely, uh, new to like this theory. You didn't read his book 20 times. Like I did. (laughs) What, like, doesn't it just seem like a no brainer? Uh, to me, it yeah. If you can, uh, you can get all the
1: benefits that you want, like hunting wise, for uh, and, and wildlife in general. Plus, you can use it as a way to make money or pay for the land. Yeah. So it just, it, yes, it seems like a no brainer. And the coolest thing to me was the the water system that he has. Yeah, he, exactly. he's really big on the on. Uh... Which he has in his second book is yeah. basically all about building this water system. Where he basically just uses like contour lines. and contour lines. To yeah, he forms dis-
0: forms canals along contour lines to, and- to
1: disperse the water where he wants yeah. it to go. So he, whenever we have these record-setting floods, he never has any damage.
0: Yeah, not damage from his own power. He gets so much runoff from his neighbors' conventional egg fields that he has some ditches that are wa- ditches that are washed out. But you can see where all of them are, and they're right where the fence line meets his property right. and it's all yep. all the water running off that property. So he, I mean, he's even, he's even like say in a drought situation, he's even collecting mm-hmm. his neighbor's water too. Yep. So everything about it is exciting. I really truly believe this is the future of uh, not only agriculture, but um, especially land man- deer hunting, like land management where a lot of us it's our lifelong dream to own property. And it usually takes a whole lifetime, a whole career, you know, just to own that one piece or that, the one or, you know, you save up forever to to own something like that. Where we're on the cusp of figuring out a system here where essentially you can buy land and work in a system like this and that land pays for itself. itself, All the while that asset um, in your financial portfolio is growing value. Right. I mean, even if it pays for half of it. I mean, most people are buying recreational land. There's like, yep, I have another bill, no matter what. Or they they assume they have to have another bill, a a large, substantial bill. It's not like your house where you just live in your house and it produces no return besides just convenience for you and your family. So it would be essentially like if you were to buy a a big house and like, yep, I'm going to live there and use it for everything I'd usually normally use a house for. But I'm somehow gonna not have bills throughout the year because it's gonna produce money somehow. Right. You know, for a house you'd have to sit and rent it out. So you wouldn't even be able to live there. Right. This is a solution where you're not renting it out. All you're doing is all you're doing is working probably with a local farmer or or you just figure out the simple practices yourself and
1: Right. Yeah, and the thing that he basically said is once you once you get it set up the way you want to get it set up, it's like minimal maintenance yeah like mowing here and there a little bit of fencing here and there but it's like it's made and set up the way the way he sets it up it's made to make it really easy to maintain
0: yeah 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 it's, a, it's, a, a, perma, a, yeah, it's a similar permaculture like concept except he has pretty much been like i'm not going to put any like a ton of effort into it so like right. he doesn't coddle you know trees plant i mean it just looks like a a large he's like he's kind of sort of like a mad scientist
1: because yeah like we were walking through different portions and he's like well this portion i did this and over here i did this just because i wanted to see which one would do better yeah with different variables mm-hmm. and it's just he i don't know i'm assuming just through trial and error this is how he got the, the yeah. perfect yeah you know, and his system. life
0: goal was he, he just wanted to hang out outside and right and uh. that's what he and he just at, over time you have to figure out how to pay the bills I guess right. and he figured that out, and then, out yeah. yeah now this is starting to get mainstream so his consulting and everything else is taken off but um, we're trying to
1: get ahead not ahead of the game but yeah, jump in early
0: yeah so I think we're gonna have a lot more with him in the future uh, yeah. we're so close to it's so cool how close we are we it so close to each other so right. um, there's no reason why we can't keep working together and um, as far as our management stuff um, we're receiving a ton of rain right now, um, mm. but I did get the trail cameras in. Yes. And I did get some trail cam pictures of the new place and yes. some new nice bucks. A couple so, nice bucks. Yeah. It's exciting, exciting stuff going on here. Um, we're sitting here looking out, watching the rainfall right now. We've had, it just seems like we've had really good timely rain. We, we had like t- six, you know, like, what was it, like eight days of dry, and then now we've gotten a couple days in a row of nice Calm rain. I mean, I know some places are flooding a little bit, but
1: yeah, it hasn't been um, too bad.
0: Yeah, the weather wise has been continuing not to have any major setbacks. So the ground is starting to be full of green and life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all aw- in his place is like just insane, too. Mark Shepard's place is how much life is there. It's insane. It I mean, we're looking nice. at the same kind of setup which you'd have here at our place, except we have a big empty egg field with a bunch of tree tubes that are going to end up being in the future of that will look like that but just, but just to see it to yeah. see what this will become was cool too and the possibilities right i mean we we walked 110 acre farm and it's like it just doesn't feel like it because it's plays so big because there's so much stuff going on
1: well it's just yeah so many different i don't know and we got to see a deer
0: yeah, we saw a few deer. Yeah, I saw so a few deer was... walk up on a bed. For a sure, was a bed. buck. Looked yeah. at his bed. Makes a lot of sense where <laughs> <Yep. So laughs> he was bedded. Everything about it was awesome. And
1: he he did. He kind of talked about it. I can't remember if it was before we started recording or not. But he talked about just the amount of birds that he heard that one morning at like 4:30. Yeah, he said like he counted. 40, 42 count
0: 42 different birds that he heard. just different birds. Different, bird different birds, yeah. And
1: like as we're walking, I was like trying to pay attention to that too. And it's just constant you yeah. are constantly hearing
0: it's a different birds, it kind of reminds me of like what a midwestern rainforest would be like yeah exactly so much life
1: and it's yeah it's pretty awesome
0: yeah so, i
1: definitely didn't think that i would be like that impressed like i don't know i was kind of like oh cool like you know it's just yeah, ca- like i just kind of thought it was just gonna be like just like a big like wooded area
0: And you drive up and you're like, what the fuck is this?
1: Yeah. (laughs) And then we got down in there and it's just, yeah, everything has a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Very
0: Um, cool. So we're going to kick that over our interview with him out at his farm now. And we appreciate you listening. Make sure you subscribe, follow, share this up. And this this is the future. This is the future. If you're listening to this, this is the future of food plotting, of deer management, everything. Like everything should be similar to these practices. There's no reason not to. We're joined here with Mark Shepard. This is uh, exciting for me because I would say it was—it it was interesting how I came upon your book this winter. Um, I had heard—I think I had already bought the book or had it—and then I, someone mentioned you on the a Rogan podcast. Actually, have you heard that before? I've—I
2: don't have time for podcasts. I'm. <laughs> I'm outdoors enjoying myself too much in the yeah. real world. I don't need to go on the recycled world, but I have heard a couple of a Rogan podcasts.
0: Yeah, yeah. So someone made a comment on you or about you there. Another guy that was from the southwest Wisconsin area. And I'm like, well, shit. I need to, I need to read this book. Who then. the
2: heck mentioned me?
0: Um, you Doug Duran, You probably don't even know who he is. Don't even know who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's a he's a conservationist. Uh, like big, he's, he's I would say he's probably one of the leading people in the hunting industry on this kind of stuff. Huh. So he farm does. Uh, a, yeah, Casanova oh, no Farm. All right. I think they're more into re. Abe probably no more. He's he's more into like regenerative uh, um, oak trees. I think they had right. clear cut, and now they they're working on the region of all their oak forests. But, um, but you know,
2: the the best oak that that we got established here was direct seed. Oh yeah. There were two different. I was uh, the control plot. Um, Back when the Southwest Badger RC&D Council was really active, they had a a direct seed machine that you you fill the hopper full of seed and just knife it in like a corn planter. And then you uh, do a broadcast with a with a cyclone. And the um, the oaks did much better with the with the um, seed planter van with the cyclone with the with the cyclone you spread it out there you disc up the field you spread it out there and you just drive on top of it when you're done mm-hmm. yeah um and it was <laughs> when we when we planted that field it was the first time i ever saw deer on their knees rooting in the ground like pigs really you know, grubbing up all the acorns it was just amazing oh no wow. shit that's crazy and so in that particular area where we where we where we whirly gigged it in and drove it in um the oaks were almost obliterated there's a few in there in the in the uh the black walnut obviously dominated. They did really, really well. Well, then on the ones where we knifed it in, um, the oaks dominated. The oaks, yeah. the oaks, and the Korean pine. Also, direct seeded Korean pine out there.
0: So that's more. That's almost like a, a no-till type thing <clears> where <throat> the, the whole planter just digs into the ground and then that seed yeah. gets dropped in there.
2: Yep, had a has a cutting cultor on the front, pizza cutter on the front, yep. and then a knife, and then a and a, a drum with holes on it that would go around. You fill the hopper. And then you'd you'd figure out how many seed you'd drop in there. The holes were big enough to take black walnut, and then you just duct tape off every third, every second one, whatever. And then you make the holes bigger or smaller depending on what kind of seed you put in. So it was it was a little bit of precision and a little bit of seat of the pants. Yeah, you know, hack your way through. but work great. It worked <clears throat> great.
0: Yeah, and I'll give ai I probably gave a a longer description of you before we jumped on this, but uh. What, if you want to just give people a little bit of background on who you are, the theories and principles you teach, um, this is kind of, that's a, I mean, that's a loaded question. Um, is this your first, is this your first hunting podcast you've ever been on?
2: It's the first one that I think is focused on hunting that you yeah. know, always seems to uh, you know, come up at some point in time. Yeah, yeah that's good. So some of my background, I uh, grew up in... Um, industrial wasteland northern massachusetts when the river would run different colors and all when the when all the factories basically uh were shut down and moved overseas in the 1970s and so it was a you know a delightfully economically depressing place to to grow up and it's like i want to get out of here i got to get out of here how do i get out of here and so i went to um you know the the push was to get a good education go to a good school get a good job so i did all that found myself as an engineer commuting 45 minutes to work Um, hating every minute of it, you know, living in a concrete cubicle. It's like, ah, get me out of here. So I I quit that job, went back to school at Unity College in Maine and studied ecology, and I never uh, completed my degree because I read that the um, Homestead Act up in Alaska, not the 160-acre agricultural homesteads, but the five-acre home site, uh, they were closing that forever. So I hitchhiked to Alaska, claimed a couple of parcels of land, and then lived uh, uh the people who lived there wouldn't consider it living in the bush because we we're only five miles from the road mm-hmm. so the road was you go 300 <clears throat> miles north of town five miles off the road you cross two lakes and a river go up 3,500 feet and that's what my cabin was and so so my goal there was how do I live in this place without destroying it because I got to see all the other because because i was up so high you know the reason Mm -hmm. why i went up thirty five hundred feet is all the valley land had been claimed and so i i got to sit up on my perch looking down as as all the neighbors just started clearing clearing the land clearing the forest in order to grow a little bit of grass and maybe have a cow or a couple of sheep and then they'd have to like you know haul in hay and all this feed so it was you know absolutely totally unsustainable so i was Mm -hmm. on the cutting edge of where where our modern culture destroys the ecosystem in order to get its food. And I says, well, I can get my food a different way. Now, I, I can't be a hunter-gatherer out here because they've shot everything all up. It's all gone. There's too many oh, of really? us. Oh, really? Yeah. There's, oh, shoot. The, and there's another thing ridiculous. Um, it wasn't ridiculous. It made sense. You know, the, the um, caribou, for example, if there's 2,500 animals in this herd, uh, in the wintertime, they're all in a bunch, and they move all throughout their their range well you, you get a tag for for hunting caribou and and because we lived you know 300 miles from town you could get a hunting license for 25 cents and then you see that i you know my draw was zone 99 well zone 99 was like 200 miles away and i know that the caribou aren't there because the caribou are right here at my house yeah and i could sit on the porch and mow them all down but and i and it makes sense from the game management perspective because there's only 2500 of them and, and if, you know, you just let people shoot them out your front door whenever you wanted to, they'd be gone in a hurry, which, you know, it's actually the caribou are struggling in Alaska simply right. because of that. And then another thing, they're herd animals, and they may be smart. I'm not quite sure. But, uh, you know, they'd be standing in the middle of the road in the wintertime, and here comes a truck around a corner, 65, 70 miles an hour. Who knows how many it hits, three, four, five, and they don't move. They just stand there because it's like, oh, it won't get me. So, boom. So
0: cuz what do you think that is? They're used to they're being in large groups and the they're herd animals and yeah. there's safety
2: in numbers and yep. everything's fine. Plus the wintertime, you really you really don't want to expend too much energy because it's a lean existence at 70 below 0.
0: Yeah. What were the rules on the homestead like cuz I remember the American Homestead Act you had to live there and sustain for what like 2 years but to these, technically these are the claim it rules.
2: or It was the same rules, the Homestead Act of 1860, but okay. there were different categories. It was the agricultural homesteads which you could have 160 acres. Then there was home sites, which was five acres, a business headquarters site was five acres, or a trade and manufacturing site was 80 acres. And so we claimed as much as it could, and then you just prove up on what you could prove up on. So the home site was what I got. And um, all you had to do was build a habitable dwelling and live in it for five months out of the year for three years in a row
0: dang that's the rules huh
2: and then you pay yeah and then you pay two dollars 50 cents an acre for a filing fee and then two dollars 50 cents an acre registering fee <laughs> and then you got it so it was, you know like ten dollars cash was the outlay but you know you try you try living you know half the year in the bush in alaska thirty-five hundred feet up the side of a mountain and see how how easy that is <laughs> No I, yeah i'm sure it isn't i'm sure it isn't that's crazy yeah all this stuff we see on tv i'm sorry folks I'm sorry. That's yeah, not, that, that's so not real. It's not funny. <laughs>
0: yeah, I was just I actually just watched that that show alone, yeah. and I was thinking of that, just the people what they had to deal with, like homesteading up there. Um, so that's so. Then from there, what brought you to Wisconsin?
2: Well, um, you know, when I would go to town, Anchorage, um, you know, and hang out with like uh, the either the conservation crowd or the um, you know the. Uh, wilderness preservation crowd and and fisheries crowds and stuff like that and uh, they were all about um, like preserving land so it won't get destroyed and it's like well well hang on a second why should we take perfectly useful land and i you know i i resonate with this to this day in alaska why should we and even here why should we take perfectly good ag land set it aside and call it conservation and no one can use it anymore. Well, that was producing some kind of food, maybe a lot, maybe not much, maybe not nutritious. It's It's all an argument that's not ours to have. Why take perfectly productive land that could be producing food or some kind of resources for people, why take it out of production in order to accomplish conservation? Why can't we mimic the natural plant community types with tall trees, medium trees, short trees, shrubs, sun-loving plants, uh, shade-tolerant plants, vines, cane fruits, and fungus. We have a full, complete ecosystem, but instead of um, just random trees or timber trees, why not pick food plants, Mm -hmm. medicinal plants? And so uh, I started talking about that with somebody, and and, um, this guy said, oh, you know, you should read the book Permaculture by Bill Mollison. And so that's what kind of turned me into the whole permaculture scene. Uh, I was eventually, I got a uh, diploma in permaculture design from Bill Mollison. And of course that was, that was so long ago (laughs) that that when when I trained in permaculture, the word permaculture meant permanent agriculture, which really resonated for me because, uh, you know, years earlier I had encountered tree crops by J. Russell Smith tree crops, a permanent agriculture, where he proposed that um, since livestock eat um, foods, grains, and legumes that could be fed to people, uh, why not take the steeper ground that's more erodible, and instead of feeding grains and legumes to the cattle, let's feed tree seeds to the cattle. So let's grow trees up above, grass down below, so we have a two-story agriculture. So that was in the back of my mind when I ran into the permaculture uh, idea, which was all about designing human habitats that we can actually live in and persist in. And so um, uh, eventually I, I got around to think, it's like, well, well, we can do this. We can do this at scale and we can do this as agriculture. Why not grow our staple food crops, our corn and our beans? Why not grow them on trees? And the equivalent nutritional equivalent to corn and beans is chestnuts and hazelnuts. Plus we get three times the oil. Let's give it a try. How can we do that and make it um, uh, economically viable? Yeah. And notice I didn't say, how can we do that and make a killing? Yeah, no, it's, that's not become what it's a millionaire. About. It's not what it's about. It's, it's about paying your bills, living a good life, and doing some really good work with, with habitat restoration, um, and and the endangered species that are even hanging out here is, is blowing my mind. This last fall, um, there was out on the concrete where we just walked, there was a Massasagua rattlesnake sunning itself. It was so cold. It's trying to strike. It's going like... uh, It's so slow. I just picked it up with a stick and whipped it out of the way. You know, loggerhead shrikes and weasels. And um, There was three years ago or two years ago, there was a researcher here from um, from Canada. And in one of my ponds, they found a northern cricket frog. Big deal, right? Well, I guess northern cricket frogs are extremely, extremely, extremely rare. It was... um, they were adapted to like these vernal pools that were wet in the springtime and then they'd dry up as the, as the grasses all grew. Mm-hmm. Or like if a tree would fall over and there'd be a the mound from the root ball and then a pit behind it, they would, they would be able to have enough time to lay their eggs. From a time the cricket frog, the, the, the northern cricket frog, jumps into the water to lay an egg till when a, a tadpole comes out as a frog is like 11 days, a real fast turnaround. And they're, they're critically dependent on that pit and mound topography, which was so common here when like an old tree would just blow over you know, in a big windstorm. So the whole conservationist to me says, well, how can, we, how can we design a farm so we can grow our staple food crops, pay our bills, and accomplish the, uh, the conservation, conservation goals? Yeah. Which is, which is really, really, if you come right down to it, I didn't get into this to be a farmer. I'm not a farmer, I didn't, you know, I didn't come from a farming background. I got into this so I could live outside and live in the woods and hang out and you know, <laughs> wake up at four o'clock in the morning and try to count how many different birds I'm hearing. The other, it was uh, late May, I got 42 different kinds of birds. Can I tell you what kind they were? Uh-uh, I have no idea what they yeah. were, but it was 42 <clears> different <throat> kinds, of, like 4.30 in the morning waking me up. Was Any beautiful. turkey
0: gobbles? There were. <laughs> <laughs> Those, that's the one bird I'd like in May. <laughs> Um, I think uh, so essentially what you're saying is you're like why don't I just figure out a really commonsensical way of living on the farm that I buy essentially
2: right. yeah and, and um, one of the things that, that is, is the model is just think about nature you think about this, this tree uh, like an acorn like an oak when it's in a mast year it puts out 10 zillion acorns yeah. out of those 10 zillion acorns a whole bunch get eaten You know, a bunch get planted somewhere else. Uh, Of the the zillion, maybe half a zillion sprout, of the half a zillion that sprout, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years down the line, there's two trees left. Mm -hmm. And so how nature does that is you've got a whole bunch of trees put in the ground. Whatever the plant is, is what they do. And the ones that actually can survive, survive the ones that are pest and disease resistant, the ones that are cold hardy, that can handle the drought, that can handle the floods, whatever it has, it's got the genetic magic in there that it can survive the site the way it is. And so we don't have to add all this fertilizer. We don't have to add all the mulch. We don't have to do all the tillage. We don't have to do all the weed control because it is site adapted period. Mm-hmm. And that's how nature rolls. I figure I can do that. Yeah. So you put out a, a shirtload of trees and then um, i noticed that the ones that i took care of grew a little bit faster than the ones i didn't take care of and the ones that i took care of got eaten by the deer because they were able to be seen mm-hmm. whereas the ones that were hidden in the weeds and the grass they didn't grow as fast and because they didn't grow as fast they didn't get half the insect damage a lot of uh, sucking insects they're after these real tender fast growing parts of your tree with aphids especially because there's extra nitrogen in there which becomes the proteins in their body so if the plant is growing slower it's not as tasty to an aphid there's not as much free nitrogen in it um so the so the bugs don't bother as much when it was in the heavy competition plus i'm, I'm learning real right off the bat young which trees are competitive with the heavy sod um, and then it's hidden from the from the deer for several years until all of a sudden instead of you having one tree here and one tree here You got this whole field of all these rows of trees. that, boom, they all of a sudden appear above the grass, and the deer are like, "Oh, where did these come from?" Right. Another strategy we did in the early years it was it was um, uh, I I was pretty proud of myself this time. It's like, "Oh, we will show those deer. We will outsmart them." (laughs) And so, you know, before ever planting a block of trees, look where all the deer trails are. And if I'm going to do a planting going across a hillside, cross the hillside this way before I got to the, to the trail where, they're, where they got regular traffic going, um, I'd put a blue flag in the in the row. Mm-hmm. So as we're going along, going along planting trees, you know, we used a mechanical transplanter. As soon as you see the blue flag, you switch to hybrid poplar and hybrid willow. So you put the hybrid poplar and the hybrid willow in the ground, and then as soon as you get to the next blue flag, you go back to whatever tree you're growing, whether it's hickory or chestnut or whatnot. Yep. And, Uh, It ended up being a brilliant strategy because they're bopping along their regular trail where they regularly go, and here's this really fast-growing, really inexpensive tree that they just, you know, annihilate. Oh, yeah. Like, the hybrid poplars grow so fast, and they're the biggest ones up. And, of course, who does the buck want to rub on? That little pathetic tree over there or this big one right over here? Right. And so they harass the hybrid poplars and willows first, and that's their preferred browse. And then just later on, as the other trees get bigger, it's like you, you... You've, you you know, faked them out for a few years,
0: so your yeah your theory is much heavily into quantity over over the older trees that people are buying for a higher price and just planting one by one and making sure that that tree is the one that survives. You're you're hedging all your bets
2: instead of yeah instead of doing individual tree and caring for that individual tree to make sure that it makes yeah. it. I'm planting you know a large quantity of trees. I'm more interested in the population of trees, not necessarily individual trees. Right. So in, 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 on the nursery side of things, because what happened really quickly, I realized that if I was gonna do this for um, food crop trees, I was gonna have to do the breeding work myself because there was nobody else doing breeding for this specific um, application. And so instead of breeding for that one prize tree that produces more of this and more of that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, I'm breeding for overall population fitness. And so the whole population as a whole is more pest and disease resistant. Inside that population, you will have winners that are that outperform somebody else. Well yep. then we'll go take those and propagate those and sell those as a cultivar for big bucks. But that's that's um, just look at look at the whole apple industry, almond industry, any woody crop industry right now where they're relying on single cultivars of a top dog plant. Well, that plant may have super high yield, it may have you know whatever quality it is that you're looking for, um, but it's got flaws. And and in order to make up for those flaws, you need extra inputs, extra weed control, extra fertility, extra yep. water. You know, extra yeah, and then
0: control. when you look at like if someone Google searches permaculture, if you don't know permaculture, and you Google search, it, and the first image that pops up is probably going to be so from an aerial footage, your farm looks like a permaculture farm. By the way, contour is, is designed, but from me standing on the ground level here, it does it wouldn't be what you'd think it was because I look at permaculture, you, you Google it, and it's like a really pretty, like well kept, no weeds. <coughs> mulch you know on every tree like perfect orchards looking
2: 16 brick rocket stoves yeah so what is oven, you know
0: so what is that like <laughs> how did you how are you first of all is there people that come here and be like well this isn't permaculture or like because you're a little bit different so explain that uh, I and mean, you kind of were where it's just more quantity over in people's eyes quality but
2: well well boy there's a, there's a lot to tease out in that one but yeah you know if we're looking for a permanent agriculture and bill mollison said that much of our design comes from nature so when i heard that i said okay we're going to design things after nature and we're going to produce food because that's what agriculture is it's all about the food and it's all about you know imitating nature so i started imitating nature instead of coming here and planting gummies or some other really cool thing because, oh, wow, look, you can grow bananas in Wisconsin you know, with a little <laughs> bit of you know, microclimate manipulations. Like, yep. F that. There was plenty of stuff that grows here without too much care at all. So let's go- Very nice controller plants. on the F that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he meant so, fuck that or something. Farm that. Farm, <laughs> yeah, farm that, oh yeah, <laughs> sorry.
2: Yeah, and, and so um, uh, my goals here have been to produce food. And lots of food, and enough to get a product on a truck. Uh, we're we're really four hours from the from you know the nearest real market, mm-hmm. f- the food market. You can talk about your local co-ops and farmers market and stuff like that. But you know, I don't care what people say. You may be making you know twelve, fourteen dollars a pound on something, but you're only selling three or four pounds. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I make two dollars a pound and I sell like two tons, I st- I make more money than you do. Yep. And so what we also get with the scale is we get the ability to machine things. Um, it, we have enough of a quantity to justify the processing, basic processing equipment, um, and, and product handling equipment. And once again, you know, we're not making, you know, millions of dollars a year. That's not the whole point. That's not the point. The point for me was habitat restoration, the wildlife, you know, this, this beautiful ecological restoration and producing food for myself, my family, and some income from sales.
0: Yeah, and I think you'll probably, I already know your answer, but do you think there's a more simpler, hands-off way to manage a property that can give you a return while using the property? Because I look at you know real estate and land, it's the asset that, you're, that you're, you, know, you get a hold of. You're gonna, that thing's going to grow in uh, value over the years. But you're saying, I mean, I'm thinking this is the best system that's the easiest for a handoff landowner or out-of-area landowner to be able to generate some type of revenue to pay for the bills. And then you're always growing the, I mean, the value of the yeah. property. I mean,
2: And, and actually, uh, this is where a lot of people, especially in the permaculture community and the agroforestry community, they want to see that this species of tree cash flows as an orchard crop. Yeah. I don't care right i care that the whole thing pays for itself and pays for the reinvestment in it when i started this project in wisconsin i did this as a real estate play i'm going to buy a piece of degraded property um and there was there was erosion gullies literally 12 feet deep out here you know it had been abandoned because it's it's the edge it's not the flat ridge tops and it's not the flat valley bottoms it's the edge of the shoulder yep. it's just massively eroded in the bedrock you run into it here and there it's, it's a, a nuisance to farm so we're going to take a degraded piece of ag land uh, that's not producing any food we're now going to produce food for human beings and the revenues from the food production go right back into planting more trees and shrubs and bushes and vines water management structures terraces, ponds, etc. Uh, So the uh, the whole idea is that the revenues from the agriculture are what pay for the asset improvement. So instead of this being another, you know, 80 acre cornfield, you look at the field to the south across the street here, it hasn't changed except deteriorated in the past Mm -hmm. 25 years. This, on the other hand, is now a top notch, you know, supersonic hunting property across the street, you know, rock bottom. It's just dirt prices. It's what you can get to sell it to a dirt farmer. Well, here it's the top end for a recreational property with an off-grid cabin with its own water supply. You know, yada yada yada. It's it's uh, yeah, and the and the agricultural production has paid for that, right? It's not paid for everything all the time. So, because actually, if you if you're interested in, in learning a little bit more about the the financial modeling of how I've rolled with this, is uh, just do a search for the BioNutrient Food Association annual meeting, I think it was November of 2018, where I talked about um, the, the invisible structures behind what you see. What we see here, this is the visible structure right on the ground, mm-hmm. but all the legal entities, the legal structuring, and how the different enterprises are set up, um, whereas uh, my personal revenue stream comes from uh, my consulting teaching, which is kind of minimal. That kind of goes with like books and online mm-hmm. learning and stuff like that. But that kind of brings people's attention to this kind of farming. And then they need to get the plants somewhere. So then there's the nursery business, which is um, another one of the businesses here. And then the farm business is the entity that actually manages the livestock and manages the trees, et cetera, et cetera. And it sells seed to the nursery that then sells it to people who put it in the ground. And then uh, the other revenue stream is residential rent from the person who lives in the house. Yep. So the whole property is held as a, um, a, by a real estate holding company, a limited partnership, and all those different pieces feed into it. Mm-hmm. No single piece will pay for everything, but all the pieces together pay for it. And the, the, the farm's job is to, the, the farm enterprise is to, uh, grow all this food, to sell food, uh, to sell, you know, nuts and fruits and produce, asparagus, uh, livestock. Um, that becomes food for me, so I basically don't have a food bill. And then uh, any extra revenues that it has, it puts back into trees that go back into the ground, which raise the asset value of the property.
0: Yeah. So anyone sitting, because it's, it's the hunter way, so the hunt, the general hunter is, you know, works the nine to five, saves up their whole lifetime to hopefully buy the 60 to 120 acres of hunting land there then they retire on this model shows that it's this it's possible before as long as you have the means to get the financing the farm then covers the risk because right. if someone came up to you and said hey if you give me a dollar and i can promise you ten dollars back in 20 years and there's no risk you're not going to lose you maybe you lose 25 cents or something while that's going on but it also pays for itself so you're not really having the bills that you think of the mortgage or the mortgage is covered under the um by just being smart about what you're doing with the property and then in 20 years you have ten dollars
2: and and a, and a great way to also look at this too is if you're working the nine to five somewhere you're not actually going to be the person doing the irs schedule f farming enterprise right. you're going to have somebody else rent the land from you Well, that's a perfect opportunity as you become a new landowner say hey okay you know mr farmer person you've been renting this land for years why don't you continue to rent this land but what i'd like to do is we're going to do a little bit of a redesign Mm -hmm. and here's the the leaflets here the folders from usda that explain what i'm going to do i'm going to do alley cropping which means we'll, we're gonna rearrange things. And we're gonna have alleys for you to do your crops in. Then we're gonna have rows for my trees. Alleys for the crops, rows for my trees. Well, we're gonna partner that with, um, with uh, contour farming. So all of the lower field edges will be within one or 2% of contour, but we're gonna really dial it in. So we're gonna make the water go where we want it to go and put it in ponds out by the ridges to have all these little wildlife habitat areas for my hunting later on. But your fields will stay parallel and, and they'll be the widths will be designed around your equipment width. And it may take 80%, you know, it, may be, it may be 20% less cropland available to you. Mm-hmm. And so I'll take the 20% and plant that all full of trees. Well, what kind of trees am I gonna plant? I'm gonna plant the kind of trees that now can produce some yields later on down the line, also wildlife feed. And here in Southwest Wisconsin, this once upon a time was oak savanna. And so we're mimicking the oak savanna plant community type. Uh, and oaks are, are in the Fagaceae family, which includes oak, chestnut, and beech. So instead of just planting oaks, we planted oaks, but um, predominantly chestnut, knowing that that would be uh, you know, future marketable crop. And then uh, the understory uh, was apples. Well, apples are cousins with you know, pears and that sort of stuff. And then we had and cherries are in there as well. Then hazelnut is the dominant shrub. Then raspberries, currants, and gooseberries in the shade. Um, there's grapes climbing all over the whole mess. Uh, mulberries showed up on their own, and um, then there's elderberries that are that are growing all over the place. And what I. Figured out is once once I started having a weed problem and my weeds were elderberries. It's like, ha, 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 I'm gonna put weeds everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So there's elderberries all over the place, um, and then then alls I do is I either will uh, farm in the alleys. And at first I did because I needed the revenue from that. And it, I've grown everything from you know corn and beans and small grains, uh, transitioned eventually to um, growing produce because you could get a much higher dollar return per acre. Uh, the downside of that was that you just put a lot more labor into it, which was fine because I had labor and I didn't necessarily have the big equipment. And then I went to produce and as time went on and I didn't need the revenue from uh, the produce as much, I would reduce uh, the acreage that I did in annual crops until this year, I think there's only 1% of the whole property is in annual crops at all.
0: That's amazing. Yeah.
2: And then you know what uh, has been significant I'm glad I did it early on. Um, it was 25 years ago. Uh, put in two acres of asparagus. That's 20,000 crowns. Um, and I've been pulling, you know, anywhere from 1,500 to 2,500 pounds of asparagus per year out of that wow. for, for 25 years. It's it's a. Well,
0: it it's a an cool incredible deal. crop, huh? Yeah, it is. Um, and it grows then, wild
2: on the side of the road. Why can't I grow yeah, wild where I want it? Let
0: it, it you know? go. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's uh, what's so exciting about that is because we talk about like a layering kind of method with contour on how to ha- like manage your property. So even in the woods you have layers, you know, of cover, water, food is your three big, big ones with deer habitat. Right. And you layer mm-hmm. them to where they feel comfortable. They're gonna, you know, as cover is one layer make sure the fo- you have water next and food because they don't want to be far away from either of those things. And all those things work together. And what you're describing essentially, so you have alley cropping. If you want to make an alley be cover, the next, I mean, everything's food so that you got that because everything you just mentioned there is something that people sell for deer habitat. They sell single chestnuts, apple trees, you know, pear trees are really popular too. Um, but you can set it up so well. And then just, I I see it as a way just how much you can control how wildlife is using your property. So getting into that, how, what was the property like when you came here? Wildlife, um, the, the, the
2: property the property 110 acres it well, there was maybe three acres in the low spots the steep spots that had uh woods on it the rest was either severely overgrazed pasture or um abandoned cropland was about 30 acres of, of corn stubble that was left behind and the deer didn't live here but they had to come through here to go between different habitat areas we're like on a on a bridge between valley systems, so they'd come across, mm-hmm. like the north part of the farm, then cut diagonally across to get to the next valley full of cover, um, and it, that was it. And and you, if you saw a deer, you'd see him on opening day, and that was it, because uh, there was there was hardly any cover at all. Um, whereas you know now it's a radically different it's a radically different scene altogether. I mean they're they're everywhere, and and I had to I had to tell this story. Uh, it's related to the. The alley cropping if you have everything parallel so your renter can now you know use his equipment yeah. in those alleys well you can also graze in those alleys and what's neat about that is now if you're going to be using portable fence to rotate livestock through it's uni- you know uniform sections of fence <clears throat> so i was i was out yesterday afternoon this really did happen yesterday afternoon and i'm i'm running fence for the pigs so, you know it's it's wet i got to get them the heck out of where they are right now they're making a mess of it and so i'm stringing new fence then I'm busy and listening to the birds. It was a beautiful day, <laughs> and then I hear this this funny little sound, like, And I hear, and I hear and like this little tap tap tap. It's like, what on earth is that? And I kind of, you know, sat up and didn't hear it. And well, then I went back to laying fence, and I hear, Phew. and I then I finally looked to my right, and like 25 feet from me, there's these two little spot fawns, and they're doing this. We're big, rough, and tough, and they're stomping on the ground. Going, <laughs> but they're only, like, this big.
0: It was so cute. Oh, God. Tell them not to learn that <laughs> stupid, terrible sound. Worst sound ever while you're hunting. <laughs>
2: yeah, but it was cute. You know, so, so to, to go from a place where, you know, maybe you'd see one on opening day to the – I mean, you don't get those little guys hanging around like that, curious about you, unless they're totally comfortable and relaxed and that this is their home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is
0: their home. Yeah, I think it's just, I mean, there's so much diversity out there. And it's so important because we talk about, you know, at least, at the very least, at least get cover crops on your annual if you're going to run that and give those fawns, turkey poults, that cover right now that they really, really need. Like, this is an important time for mom and, and the fawns. And I, there's, I mean, you look around here and there's unlimited amount of cover. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, totally
2: unlimited amount of cover. Yeah. Actually, one of the things that the, uh, the organic croppers do sometimes too is in the springtime when they're putting in their corn is they'll, they'll top seed with uh, like a, a, Dutch white or an alcyc clover. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that'll, that'll give a l- little extra nitrogen to the corn and it really doesn't interfere because it, you know, it doesn't get much taller than, you know, 12 to 18 inches tall, but especially when it's young right now, it's like super high protein feed for the, all the ground nesting birds. Yeah. Okay. We have a,
0: there's a guy in the hunting industry right now that just created a, a, well, not just, but has a food plot seed company and they are. And they're, they're one of the first ones that have started pushing the wide variety cover crops in with the beans and corn. So actually going through right now, uh, probably in July, where the corn's about knee high and, and broadcasting in, you know, the brassicas and yep. clovers and turnips. And then the corn gets taken off and it's a green lush field for the rest of the winter. Plus you have probably rye that comes back the next spring in the mix. Yep. Um,
2: you know, and if you've got the if you've got like the, the tillage radish that are in there, they're going to be you know helping to bust up the hard pan. Yeah, you've got, you've got uh, I know a lot of the prairie restoration folks don't like yellow sweet clover or white sweet clover because it's so invasive, but I love it because it's got this you know incredible you know tap root that drills through almost anything. And and the soils here, you know, they've really improved. They've turned from like a red or a yellow clay to a, a topsoil colored topsoil. It's still yeah. sticky, you know, clay derived topsoil. But, you know, we never had any topsoil before when we got here. Have you
0: done, uh, do you know how much organic matter you've built over the 26 years? Have you done those tests or infiltration I, rates or anything?
2: Yeah, I have. I have done, every three years I'll do a soil test on the, on the areas where I'm going to be growing some kind of cash crop. And so I don't have, like, blanket soil tests that cover 26 years. Uh, so I have, you know, the, the soil tests that I have cover 26 years, but they're, they're, they kind of move around as yeah. I've moved around. And and I'm willing to bet you that on, on the cropping ground, the uh, obviously the organic matter isn't what it is on the perennial ground. I do know it was, I think it was 2016 where we had some you know hellacious rains and floods, yeah, and there was floods all over the place around here. Well, no water left this farm on the surface because it was all held in all the all the all the channels and in all the ponds, and and um. I called my uh, NRCS guy. I said, hey, you got to check this out. There's been no overland water flow off the farm. And we had 13 and a half inches of rain in a 24-hour period in the Viola area, mm-hmm. and nothing left this farm.
0: And so, so you're he- telling me that the 10-foot t- holes that appear in the in people's ag fields around here don't have to be when we get rain like that? Yeah. doesn't have to be like doesn't that. It doesn't have to
2: be <laughs> like that. It, you know, the thing is, it was in Coon Valley where they pioneered the whole conservation um, practices, you know, with terraces and all that stuff. And, it, and it's the and you can epicenter still, of
0: what happens to why, you know.
2: And you can still use terraces and you can actually farm 100% of the terraces if you just design it that way. You don't have to take land out of production to put in a terrace. And well, what I do, though, it, I'll move it, the water around and I don't put a drain. I don't want that water to drain away. It will be too much water in my alley so I won't be able to get crops in early. So I move it somewhere else where I want it to be wet. And that's mm-hmm. where, that's where the, oh yeah, did I mention we have ducks? <laughs> a uh, yeah. ducks yeah, a ridge, a ridge corn farm that all of a sudden has nesting ducks.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, so at looking at the deer hunting perspective, what is, what have you seen um, from the quality of deer that you've had here to how many deer live here over that 26 years?
2: Well, the, um, uh quality i don't notice that much difference because it used to run so fast coming through here that i never really get to get a chance to see much um plus in the early years while we were here there was a lot of uh you know doe only restrictions that kind of stuff um you know more recently i've been able to go ahead and, and take out some bucks and uh there's there's way way more and like i said before you know this used to be the place where the deer went through now it's the place where they, they come from mm-hmm. and i'm just like looking in my mind right now i'm looking at the i put together a presentation i've got a couple of families that that lease that that do a hunting lease out here and um so another we,
0: revenue stream if you're not a hunter that's right. for the right so, yeah. so we
2: come out here and and you know we have a great time spend the week hunting and whatnot but before that i took all my trail cam pictures and i uh, from the different trail cam sets that I had. And I said, okay, these guys overlap with these guys. Here's the big ones right here. This guy has been top dog for three years. Take him out. He's a target. He's everybody's trophy. Well, these two over here, they're nice deer. And if you're like 19 or 20 years old, you're probably going to be shaking in your boots mm-hmm. and just want to waste that thing. Don't, because next year he's going to be this guy right here. And so I kind of laid out all these, all these deer, and there were six. They're like, here's these six that we can take, and then there was at least another six that were, you know, I wouldn't say they were like inferior inferior, they were younger, and they were, they were a little bit runtier and stuntier, they they didn't have the antler development that the other ones did, we had, we had one, um, it was a unicorn, Uh, it only had, uh, had one uh, tine, it was on the right side, and it was about, it was about
0: Oh that's 12, awesome. 12
2: almost 12 to 18 inches long.
0: Got a dagger out there. And,
2: and then we found the shed. We actually found the shed this winter. It's like there it is. That's that's unicorn's shed.
0: I would imagine your property just gets better and better through the year as as crops the you know the desert starts in the area where crops are t- getting taken off in October,
2: when the when exactly exactly right when the when the crops come off in October and there's no more cover, they just pile in here. And there's there's a couple areas that I've left too that I've left as like uh, parade grounds. I first decided to do it when I noticed that oh look these guys are getting together and they're toughing it up here. They're having a mm-hmm. little, you know showdown, and so I've I've made them into the coliseum on purpose. Put extra you know feed around there, a couple of water holes right next to it, and it's it's almost unfair because they're going to go there and they're going to you know fight and rustle around a little bit and then we just pick them off
0: yeah not to mention i mean we've we've talked on this podcast before where deer have that sense so they have so there's some people like deer biologists who will say deer actually have an extra sense in the sense to to distinguish quality food over not quality food and you know there's been some studies on on regenerative farms like or do you like the word regenerative? Or you? Well, you regenerative
2: actually has a term in ecological and natural resources management yeah. that differs slightly from what the agricultural people picked up on. It's okay. On the agricultural side of it, if they would flesh it out more to include the ecological, uh, forestry, and natural resources management side, I'd be okay with it. Whereas regenerative means the ability of a you know an organism, a population, or a plant community type or an ecosystem to regenerate itself and to propagate itself and to expand its range with the existing soil types, weather patterns and disturbance patterns. Yeah, so that's why restoration fits the bill. Let's take a fire that comes through Paradise, California as an example. Well, California, that part of California has a track record of about uh, eternity every so often a catastrophic wildfire goes through it has nothing to do with pg and e's wires lighting it on fire that part of california has catastrophic wildfires on occasion and you can tell you know in fossil record you can tree cores you can tell how often this happens so when the fire goes through and burns this regenerative broccoli farm to the ground does that broccoli farm replant itself and sprout all over again and is in full vigor next year, no it doesn't. So it fails to meet the, re- the term regenerative mm-hmm. whereas the trees and the shrubs and the bushes and vines in Paradise, California after those as fires as went through, they were green as can be. That's regenerative. So okay. I've used I use the term, you know, in my book Restoration Agriculture on Purpose because we're accomplishing ecological restoration for real. We legitimately are mm-hmm. mimicking the local plant community types and doing ecosystem restoration simultaneous with agriculture.
0: Yeah, so what I was saying is there's I think there's some there's starting to be some proof where deer actually, because they're selective grazers, they're actually coming and selecting this type of food more over the neighbors who may have the same crop because of the nutrients that it provides because it's not watered down with herbicide, insecticides, pesticides over 30 years.
2: Right, well, and one of the things with, with, the, with the soluble salt fertilizers is that uh, a lot of the nutrient goes into the plant through diffusion. If you got a 10% you know, uh, nitrogen in the soil water, and it's only 1% in the plant, just by simple diffusion, that nitrogen goes into the plant. Well, now the plant has too much of these salts, so it's thirsty, so it takes in extra water. So much of its bulk is from extra water that it takes on. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's different with uh, you know, folks that are more organic or biological, um, whatever you want to call it, is uh, the use of calcium. Not all calcium is the same. We live in an area here on dolomite limestone, and we end up having, we have adequate calcium, but the amount of magnesium that's in the dolomite is high enough that it makes it appear as if there's a calcium deficiency. So when you put on a high calcium line from from uh, someplace else, it adjusts the pH, but what's more important than adjusting the pH is that calcium, because the calcium is basically what what helps to bring all the nutrients into every cell in your body. And so if you're a critter going around here and you're growing these these hard bony structures on your head that are like a high percentage of calcium and you eat this stuff and all of a sudden you feel really satisfied and really good, we're gonna have better antlers because we have higher calcium in the soil because we're uh, we're amending for the calcium, not necessarily as a pH adjustment, but as a nutrient, as an essential plant nutrient.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, you read the studies where, you know, the the apple of today is really just a a thing. The the nutritious value of it is nothing where it was in, like, the 50s or 40s or 30s, and you're essentially reversing that. So you're bringing nutrients back into your actual, your apple is closer to what the apple was in 1930.
2: Well, and actually, in the turn of the 20th century, 19th and 20th century, I, I believe there was there were over uh, 20,000 different named apple varieties across the USA, you know, cataloged in ridiculous detail. Um, now it's down to a handful. Well, Why did they need so many varieties of apples back then? They didn't have the pester disease sprays, right. and so the apples that worked well in your region that were totally pest and disease free weren't perfectly good and suitable for his region or her region or their, their region, so you just needed that diversity in there, which is another reason why we go primarily with seedlings, because we want the genetic diversity. Um, and part of the genetic diversity is we find out the losers. It's really yeah. easy to find out the losers because they they just suffer and die. Well, if they suffer and die, they're not sh- uh, shedding pollen. They're yeah. not casting pollen. They're not reproducing. I don't pick any seed off of them because they didn't make any seed. So you you in a, in a real short period of time, um, by being ruthless with what seed you're saving, you um, you get You get plants that are incredibly rugged and adapted to your site
0: yeah, and diversity i mean if, if, a, if something ruins your apple crop in the area where well, you have chestnuts and hazelnuts that aren 't affected by the same insect or thing that happened to the apple right. trees right uh, so you're and, just...
2: and because i 'm not, I'm not carrying um, the debt load on you know three million dollars worth of equipment i don 't have yeah. to have you know kick ass yields and revenues, which, which is really our <laughs> kind of brings up a point like my asparagus i mentioned about 1500 to to 2000 pounds a year that seems like a lot of asparagus but i'm actually getting about half the yields that you could expect off of an asparagus patch that size it's like what half the yield just ridiculous do this and and the other thing get the yield it's like but you haven't put
0: anything into it for how long no expenses involved
2: i just go out and pick this stuff so so although I might get half the yield, my, my expenses are, are a fraction of what they would be otherwise. Yeah. Well, then, then one of the things that in agroforestry lingo, uh, they use a term called the land equivalent ratio. And if you're growing corn, 100% corn, that's one crop. So you've got a land, uh, land equivalent ratio of one. Well, if you take 20% of that and put it in a black walnut, for example, uh, but don't put it in a, a block in the corner, 20% of it in walnut, but do skinny strips throughout the whole thing, you now only get 80% of the corn. So, you know, I have a 0. 0.8.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's
2: that's 20% reduction in your expenses uh, for doing corn. So that's kind of nice. Well then, because the alleys that you've just made are so wide spaced, you can actually get a 50% stocking density out of your walnuts. So you got a 0. 0.8 of corn and a 0.5 of walnut 0.8 plus 0.5 is 1.3 you're making 1.3 times what you would get as if you had had all corn so by making less yield you actually yield more oh and then and then, and then <laughs> if you then if you then if you reduce your expenses down to almost nothing um it gets it gets pretty extreme and yeah one of the things in uh, everything from grassland ecology to forest ecology it has been shown over and over and over again that the total photosynthetic yield of a site is directly related to the number of species there. Once upon a time it was thought, oh because this species helps that one, helps this one, helps that one, helps this one, helps that one. And they're basically saying it's not really that. It just has however many total species you can cram in there. We'll give you your maximum site yield. Um, well if we're gonna do this on a farm or even a hunting property there's only so many things that we can deal with at a time and I can deal with like three or four above ground species at a time and maybe two or three in a good year livestock species on the ground. It just gets too crazy. One of the reasons why it gets too crazy is because now you're going to get reduced yields of every one. You may not be able to get it to market. So I need to have enough of whatever it is to get it to the markets at hand and yet not, uh, not, so much that I'm overwhelmed and I can't keep up with it labor wise uh, and diverse enough that I've got, you know, some stability through, you know, wet years, dry years, mm-hmm. you know, good pollination years, et cetera. Um, so I've got enough diversity, but not too much um, and enough volume, not too little, not too much.
0: Yeah. And it, it comes back. We talk about it all the time. It's, it's an aesthetic thing for hunters. It's like, why do you need to have the perfect monoculture uh, bean field? it's because they like the way it looks or they come out and mow their clover field and it's a monoculture clover field. They like the way it looks. Um, and you're not, I mean, they're not even living their life on the yield they're getting off the property right. and they're putting t- the same inputs in to get the same result for with no revenue. So, I mean, you know, our argument is always just save your, save the money. <laughs> I mean, roundup and, and uh, all the, all the fertilizer and all that stuff doesn't get, doesn't return. Cause if there's a rag, if there's ragweed goldenrod and, and other shit in your bean field, I mean it doesn't count towards the yield of the bean field, but the deer still eat that. Right. <laughs> so and, and you just didn't waste all the money on the on the herbicides and everything to control that weed that the deer are already eating.
2: Yeah. And yet you go out you'll go ahead and you'll control the weed that they're eating in order to buy seed for a food plot right. to give them something to eat because you controlled the weed that they were eating. That's, that's, that's the, that is, vicious, ridiculous cycle that, that doesn't, make sense. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. make sense. It doesn't make
0: sense from a farming perspective, and it really doesn't make sense from the hunting perspective where really, I mean, that land is your asset. So you, I mean, you don't, you should do nothing to destroy that because you just want that to be the most valuable thing ever in 20, 30 years. Cause then, you know, you can, you can attest to how much power having an asset like that that paid for itself to getting more financing down the road to, you know, it's just a huge leverage piece. And for people to degrade their land in a hunting situation where you can't even make the excuse this yield is what's feeding your family right you can't use that excuse yeah. it's, a, it's a recreational property remember <laughs> you know that's the that's the bad that's, the, that's the, what we're always talking about and, um, and if
2: it's a recreational property and if and if we get our recreation by being outdoors and really you know getting off on the beauty of it all instead of these straight rows what about these nice curvilinear rows that go with the contours of the yeah. lane? in these nice little alleys you have some alleys with mowed grass that you walk down and stroll down it's beautiful uh, it's just and and then the diversity you know from the from the birds to the butterflies to the flowers there's always flowers going on here it's just the smells the sights the the three-dimensionality is just just uh, out of this world you know from the tall the short the medium and you'll see as we walk around if it doesn't yeah. rain on us too bad
0: i i like i mean the contour thing is so because go anyone walks in their hunting woods those deer trails, is less unless an obstruction comes into play, a ditch, a downed tree, something, they are autumn, like they're literally walking along the contour. You can, you can look at an aerial map. The topo lines is where the deer trails are for the most part. So it's like, why wouldn't you build that woods out and give them more space where they want to move just the way that they want to move anyways? And then you provide the food, the cover, the, the, the water, everything out there. Your property, I mean...
2: That's another thing, too, that... Yeah. With, with you know my consulting and design and install work, uh, I don't have a, a lot here that's done that way because I don't have a lot of woods. But if you have a forested area that's already been logged or whatever, yep. now let's put our access roads that go through this forested area. Yeah, along the contour. Slightly along the contour and ditched in such a way that they bring water to a water spot yeah. uh, where we want to have some water soaking in and going off in a sheet. Instead of having a you know, runoff going down the valley, causing erosion and all that kind of stuff, catch it spread it out slow it down soak it in and then deposit it on the ridges you know in a nice uh, easy sheet after it fills a pond and then that doubles as your as your access road for four wheeler or tractors or whatever
0: to everything yeah. <laughs> it all works together and then you just i mean you don't even you really don't manage this property for deer hunting but like you still have those people have success and all you have to do is set a couple traps along those contours and maybe shove a couple contours together and that's what we call a pinch point yeah I, I actually
2: manage. I actually manage for ecosystem health, mm-hmm. and when I'm managing for ecosystem health, uh, some of my goals include because I'm mimicking the oak savanna is always maintaining grassy ground cover, except in the forested areas, which were the low spots anyways. So by ma- managing for semi-open, all of these different edible plants that are edible for me or saleable as as products for me, it just by accident, ends up becoming perfect deer habitat, yeah. turkey habitat.
0: That's exciting. Yeah. And the crazy thing will pay for itself over time if you do it correctly. So the person who's listening to this that, or the person who's looking to buy property, how, what, what would you say the best thing for them to get started? What's, how do, how do you start this?
2: How do, venture? <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you mean by how do you start this? You like start how, real so real someone
0: real. buys a piece of property and they're like, yep, I'm in, eight, 20% is going into trees what's the next thing you tell them to
2: Well, uh, I would, first of all, uh, what, what trees? So the what trees is no matter where you are, where you're listening to this is, is look up, what are the, the local plant community types or the forest cover types? Um, and what have they been historically as far back as we know? Because if we go with the species that have been here, you know, through hot cycle and ice age and all that kind of stuff, if we go with the species that are adapted to this area, we'll have the most success. And, and just because one particular chestnut that was bred down in Florida claims to have the biggest nuts and the sweetest nuts for deer and all that kind of stuff doesn't mean it's going to work well in Idaho. Florida gets this much rain, get that kind of soil. Mm -hmm. Idaho gets that cold in the wintertime, that kind of soil. So, um, what kind of plants survived in your area for a long period of time then manage your water because no matter what property you buy, if it has been, uh, used at all by modern human beings the hydrology is all farmed up effed up <laughs> so minor corrections will help it out some you know some some terraces swales and berms channels and mounds whatever you want to call them to move the water where you want um at a very very gentle grade you know less than a one one or two percent slope and a percent slope a one percent slope is a one percent drop or a one percent rise over 100 feet Mm -hmm. very very shallow the water will move but it won't you know uh, be erosive then once you do that uh lay everything out lay lay everything out according to your water management system uh, and then do your agroforestry practices your alley cropping silvopasture and then that's where either you as an individual come in to do the farming in between or you plant just you know food plots in between, or you have a neighbor rent that place in between, or you lease it out to somebody to graze cattle in between, um, and then just manage it forever. But when you manage it, don't necessarily manage it the way they tell you in all the orchard books of how to manage things. Uh, go straight to like high forestry. and yeah, go to forestry, natural resources type stuff. If you think about like uh, you know uh, industrial scale forestries, they'll go in, they'll they'll do a logging operation. If it requires replanting, they'll replant. If it's natural regeneration, they'll let it you know, regenerate. Well, then at a certain point in time, there's too many stems per acre, then they go in and they'll do a, a, you know, a timber stand improvement or a thinning, whatever they, they call that. That might be 10, 15, 20 years down the line. So if we can farm and only go onto the property once every 10 years to do work, that's pretty cool. Well, when we go in, um, I'll go into an area and I'll do a thinning. Well, what I remove is the thinnings. I then inoculate with mushroom spawn. There's firewood, there's saw logs, and mushroom spawn. And um, I, I am producing more and more mushrooms as the years go by, and I'm thinking that I'm about entering into the phase where I just could switch entirely to be grazing and mushrooms almost really? exclusively. Yeah. yeah, think about it. If you cut trees down in the woods, yeah, lay them so on the much, ground, they're yeah. probably going to rot, aren't they? Yeah. Well, why not rot them with mushrooms that I can sell or eat? Or feed to pigs and so then then you want to manage manage the property according to the disturbance regime that it naturally had and you want to imitate like in the oaks event you want to imitate closely the effects of fire which you can either use fire or mowing you want to imi- imitate the effects of grazing by large you know uh herds of herbivores you might want to imitate that by running herds of herbivores through there you know yeah. pigs <laughs> and cattle and whatnot and those are the the primary um disturbances in um in uh, oak savannas plus there was wind throw every once in a while so there so wasn't
0: it, big tilling machines back then huh? there weren't <laughs> okay <laughs>
2: but there w- actually there was because the uh, dominant grazing animal right here in southwest wisconsin before people got here was actually mastodons yeah and so what the elephants would do is they'll go up to the trees and they can't reach the stuff on it anymore they just go over. knock it down and if you think about the trees we were talking about you know our oaks our chestnuts you know beech hazelnut, apple, cherries, plums, they all coppice. They all sprout right back from the root again. So you go ahead, you knock it down. Now you've got a pit and a mound. Your pit fills up full of water. Wow, now we have channels and mounds that we can put in our, in our property. We're just imitating nature. Um, and then we get all the benefits of that.
0: Yeah, so we need to get going. Can't take up all of your time. We could talk probably for hours and hours. But last thing I want just to hammer home for the people listening. If you took away all your consulting, traveling, all the, all the crap that's beyond what you do on the farm here, is, it, is this something that someone can do that has a full-time job, either lives on the place they're hunting or even possibly away from a, an outsider, you know, you live two hours away from the property?
2: If you got a full-time job? Uh, absolutely, it makes it easy. Yeah, if you if you took away job, that
0: makes it easy. Yeah, oh. if you took away all of your all of your other things that you do, and you just focus on the time that you spend managing this property and the the value that it brings back to you, anybody can truly do it. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, there's it's, not there's not a real big. excuse of a I don't have time. Yeah.
2: Well, because you think about it, one of the reasons why it's so easy to manage and maintain these plants are adapted to this place. They 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 have been here like these oaks, for example. In theory. If you look at one reference book, it's like 95 million years they've been around. I think they know how to handle Southwest Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Other reference yeah. books say they've only been around 6,000 years. I don't care which re- reference book you use. They've been here a long time. Yeah. And they, they know how to roll. They know how to roll. Same with the hazelnut. Same yeah. with the
0: Put the hazelnut. ball back in their court. Let them yeah. do what they Let do. Let them
2: do it. And you just, you just walk away. You come back next year, and it's better.
0: So where can people find your book, you, the services you provide,
2: well, for um, edible uh, woody, woody crops, trees, and shrubs, go to the forestag.com website. That's our nursery. We're a, a networked nursery. of several different people who are doing living this lifestyle. We're breeding with various different trees for different regions. Um, chestnuts and hazelnuts and pine nuts are, are kind of our big focus. A lot of other edible woody plants as well. Um, so that's forestag.com. Then restorationag.com is Restoration Agriculture Development. That's our consulting, uh, education, design, and install company. We'll do everything from just talking with you and, and helping you set up a, a strategy of how do I do this transition myself? Or we say, okay, we'll, we'll come in and we'll we'll do the initial site analysis. We'll do a survey, we'll, we'll do water management, and we'll do the tree planting. So sometimes we've worked with folks for like three or four years getting the whole system installed. Once it's installed, it's up to you to take care of it. We've just recently started having some um, long ongoing maintenance uh, projects where we supply the maintenance on the ground long term. We just just started that recently. Then to get um, copies of my book, uh, Restoration Agriculture is my first one. The second one is um, Water for Any Farm. Talks all specifically about the water management techniques that we use. Go to Acres USA and search for those two books. And, and just, Amazon, has just, re- yeah, don't get it from Amazon because then I only get like a dollar a book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but you go to go to Acres USA, yeah. and they'll probably sh- they'll probably ship it through Amazon anyway. So. <laughs> but I get I get a bigger uh, cut if you go through Acres USA. Go through Acres USA, yeah. and then just um, uh, just last week actually we released an online training program that's uh, I couldn't believe how broad and in depth it is. Um, uh, that's also available at Acres USA, and I don't know specifically the URL. You could probably post it in afterwards, but
0: yeah, yep, we will find all that and it'll be posted in the podcast. So we appreciate you joining us, and now we have to go walk this place.